Good morning. Nope. Hold on. Is that on? Is it working? Just ain't working. Hello? Does that work? Oh, there we are. All right. Let's try that again. Good morning. You know, there's a difference. I think about it uh, when I see all the kids running around, when I see some of you guys on uh, Sunday mornings. There's a difference in um, being a part of a church and being a part of a church family. There's a little bit something different that happens when you really commit to being a part of uh, the body of Christ. And, and I, I'm, I'm blessed not just to have my family here, um, not just my wife and, and daughter, but also I, I attend church and, and work with a lot of my family here, but also that, that you guys are my church family. Uh, many of the times that I have, uh, we, we've hit hard times or you've hit hard times or, or as a family, I've watched time and time again this body of believers be here for one another. And some of you, um, some of you right now really need that. You need to go from being a part of a church to being a part of the body of Christ that will wrap its arms around you and you will do the same in good times and in bad times. Um, in Luke chapter 15, we see a story all about a family. In Luke chapter 15, the last part of it, we've looked at this one chapter for three weeks, and the last uh, parable we've studied is all about a family. And we're going to close today by looking at that, um, at, at that family dynamic in one more different way. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, if you've got them. This is the third week we've looked at this chapter, and we'll close this series today, and Terry will be back to preach next week. Uh, let's, let's read today from Luke chapter 15. We will read verses 11 through 24, and it's here on the screen for you to follow along with as well. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran. He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. May God bless today the reading of his word. So far, we have studied in uh, this series, we've studied the first two characters of Jesus' parable. Maybe we call it the parable of the prodigal son. Maybe we call it the parable of the lost son or the two lost sons. We talked about that last week. We looked at those two sons, those two brothers involved in this story last Sunday. We saw that the younger son who goes and squanders everything the father gave him after presumptuously asking for it in the first place, we see that he's a mirror image of the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus is spending time with in the beginning of Matthew or of Luke rather chapter 15. In fact, that's why this story starts. He's eating with sinners. He's eating with tax collectors. He's spending time with them. And in this story, that younger brother is a mirror image for those who have wandered away from Christ and have now found themselves back with the Father. And at the same time, in the, the last part of chapter 15, we get a, a story about this older brother. That after the celebrating begins, he's outside. He won't go inside where the party's at. And instead, he's sulking about what's going on with his father and his brother. And we said that that was a mirror image of the second group that was with Jesus that day when he told that story. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were, uh, Jesus said, you're not just keeping others out of the kingdom of God. That's what you're trying to do, but you're not getting in yourselves. But today, we close this series, we close this story by looking at the most important character in the parable of the lost son. In fact, that's where your bulletin notes start today if you want to follow along. That's what the first line in the first blank says. Today we close this series by looking at the most important character in the parable of the lost son. That is, of course, the father. Last week we looked at which brother are you? Are you the younger brother that needs to come back to the love of the father? Or are you the older brother who needs to accept those who are coming to the father? Guess what? None of you, none of us are the father. None of us identify here with the Father. This is a picture of God that we will study and get to look at today. Today we come to the character in this story who makes all the difference in this story. Without the Father, you could argue that both of these sons would still be lost. The younger son uh, would would still have no place to go, would still be probably trying to eat what the pigs are eating. And the older son 
would still be ungrateful for everything that he has. Without the Father, there would be no redemption. There would be no happy ending in the story of the lost son. And so today, that's what we want to spend our time looking at, is the Father's part of this parable. So let's look at it again together, primarily in verses 20 through 24 of Luke chapter 15. Let's read those again as we look closely at the Father in this story. It ends with the son getting up and going to his father. But verse 20 then says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. That's the next part of the verse if you want to go on there. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Today we're going to take a deep look at what this father does in this parable for the father in this story again we've said it for three weeks Luke chapter 15 is one of those you can look all the way down to the bottom of the lake kinds of passages when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ I believe Luke 15 to be one of those extra clear pictures this is the gospel of Jesus in a story that Jesus told to the crowd that day. And so we see a clear picture of our loving Heavenly Father in this Father that Jesus talks about. So today we're going to talk about what the Father does in this story, but we're going to start on the other side. What the Father didn't do in this story. That's where your notes continue as we go along. What the father didn't do in this story is just as important as the things he eventually did do when the son returned home. But look first at what he didn't do. Number one, he didn't argue. Number one, the father didn't argue. Look back at how this whole thing started with the request of the younger son. Luke 15, verse 12. The younger one said to his father... Father, give me my share of the estate. Last week we talked about what a a deep, blatant sign of disrespect this would have been to the father. And yet, what does the father do? That verse continues and he says, So he divided his property between them. Father didn't put up a fight. The father complied to this request. Let me talk to the fathers in the room for a minute. Moms, you're included too, but I think that you're going to react maybe a little bit different than our dads would in this scenario. Imagine if one of your children came to you and asked what the younger son asks in this story. They came to you and asked you to go ahead and give them what was theirs, what was to be theirs after you were dead, and give them what you owed them. 
basically that they wish that you were already dead and that they could just have your stuff. What would your reaction be? You see, mothers, you would probably be a little more gracious. Uh, now, some of them probably would. Uh, but dads, what would you do in this situation? We said last week that uh, in Jewish culture, it would have been well within this father's right on hearing such uh, a slam from his son to have publicly beat his son as a, a punishment for that disrespect. But this father in the story just agrees and goes along. This father in the story divides up his estate, even though most of it would have been land, most of it would have been property. And even before his death, he goes into the legal nightmare of dividing up a third of everything he had and selling it off so that he could oblige the youngest son's disrespectful request. I think most parents who have raised children into adulthood probably understand the father's decision. After all, it wouldn't have done any good for the father to force the son to stay. But understanding the logic and being able to stand in that position and make the decision that that father did is a totally different story. I still guess that it would be tough for any of us fathers to just stand there and, and do nothing. He didn't do nothing. He, he went along with the son's request. He didn't argue. He didn't fight him on it. He didn't try to give him better options. He went ahead and divided the property and let him go. But look number two at what he didn't do. The father didn't go out to bring his son back. The father did not go out into that distant country traveling after him to bring his youngest son back. I think that's especially interesting if you consider how the other two parables went in Luke chapter 15. Let's look back at them for, for just a second. Remember we started a couple weeks ago with the first two parables Jesus talks about in Luke 15. There's a parable about a sheep and there's a parable about a coin. Look at what happens when those things get lost. Look at Luke 15 verse 4. It says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and, and loses it. Uh, loses one of them. Look at what he does. He goes, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the sheep until he finds it? That's what the shepherd in this first story does. He on purpose goes out and searches for that sheep that has strayed away until he found it. And then Luke 15 verse 8, we see what the woman does. This woman has lost her coin. And look at what she does. If she loses has ten silver coins and loses one. Look at what it says she does there. Doesn't she light a lamp? Doesn't she sweep the whole house? Doesn't she search carefully until she finds it? Because with these two items, you have to go looking for them. In fact, if the shepherd didn't go looking for the sheep, it would be a matter of time before the sheep was dead, had succumbed to the elements, or some predator had gotten them 
if, if the coin, if the woman didn't go looking for the coin, then it would be lost in the house until somebody just stumbled upon it and found it on accident. But a lost son is a different story. A lost son, you don't necessarily go out and find it in the same way. After all, this son didn't accidentally wake up one day and find himself lost and separated from his father. This was a blatant move on his part. This was willful. This was on purpose that he turned away and found himself lost and separated from the father. There's another way, at least in this story, there's another way to go about finding a lost son. A lost daughter, maybe in your case. And that is this, to wait. Before we go on, let me ask you, and you just think about this, how good are you at waiting? Is that one of the things you excel at? Waiting? I bet it is. Um, let's look now at what the father did. He didn't, he didn't argue with the son. He didn't dispute the point. Or not let him leave. He didn't go out searching to bring him back like the other two uh, in the other two stories did. But what did this father do? Look at it in verse 20 again. A lot of the father's own actions are here in chapter 15, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. That's the, the son's part. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What did the father do in this story? What's his action here? Number one, he waited patiently. He waited patiently. It may not say that in so many words, but where do we get that? Look at what it says. While he was still a long way off. Did you catch that? While this son was still a long way off, his father sees him. How do you see something when it's still a long way off? You're watching and waiting for it. The father, while he didn't go out searching for his son, the father did not give up waiting for him to return. Imagine what the father must have known here. He would have known about the famine in the, in the land. He would have received word about such a terrible famine in this country and the direction in which his son had traveled. He might have even known or, or received word about the son's condition. He was a wealthy man. He may have had ways to find out exactly what his son was doing. But he chose to stay home and wait for his boy to return. The father knew what was going on. Church, you think your heavenly father doesn't know if you're living far away from him? Growing up, my older sister Tabitha, who is here today, so that's that. Um, she used to tell us younger kids, she used to tell us all the time, don't do anything you don't want dad to find out. 
Because he knows. He knows everything. He knows everything. My dad will find out everything. And he did. He always did. You think your heavenly father doesn't know what you're, what you're doing when you're running away from him? You think your heavenly father is just unaware that you've turned your heart, that you've turned your back from him? No, he, he knows. But he waits. But he waits. What if the father hadn't waited? What if the father had done what some of you mothers have probably done in some situations, and that is just marched out off after your child and brought them back? Not just moms, maybe dads have done that. What if he did? Well, how would he ever know that the son was sincere? How would he ever know anything but resentment from his son if he just yanked him out of that lifestyle he was bound and determined to live? He would have rescued his son out of the pit, and yet his son would have come home resentful of his dad. He never lets me live the life I want to live. Instead, the father had to wait. The father had to wait until the son came to this realization on his own. That he can't do it by himself. And I would take a pretty educated guess today and say that there are people here today, maybe many people here today, for whom their Heavenly Father is still waiting. He's still waiting for that day that you're going to get it in your head that you can't do this by yourself. He's waiting for the day that you're going to realize, you know what, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against my heavenly Father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son and run back home. He's still waiting on some of you. Number one, he waited patiently. Number two, what did the Father do? This one gets, gets interesting as well. He ran. It's just two words, so it's kind of easy to, to maybe miss that part. But look at what he does here. Let's read, uh, just look at verse 20 again. It says, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. I've done some studying about this particular parable. And I, I ran upon somebody that, that put it this way. In the ancient Middle East... It would have been completely unheard of for to see a father, a head of a household, a head of a, an estate as this man was, to see him run. Even today, it's very unusual in that culture that you would see an older man run. It was beneath them. It would have been a humiliating display. And yet the father ran. Another article I read stated that the, a man in this day would have never chosen to run, not because just of the, the act of humility, but also because of how difficult it would have been. They didn't wear jeans and pants like we do today. They wore tunics. And just the act of having to gather up his clothes, I read one guy that said, just gathering up his tunic in order to run after his son would have meant showing your bare legs to everybody. Believe me, nobody wants to see that. And that in itself would have been such a sign of disrespect that nobody would think to do it. And guess what the father does? 
So why did this father run? Many have suggested that this father wanted to get to his son first before everybody else did. Before he came to the village where the people in the town might have mocked him or ridiculed him or jeered at him and said things like, see, I I told you so. Or where they would have gossiped about him, about all the things he had done and all the things that, that he had done that were just disgraceful things and sinful things. The father ran to recover his son and bring him back into the safety of his home. If you're still out there running today, the Father desires for you to come home. The Father's going to do, when you come to your senses and realize where you've been and that you're far away from Him, the Father's going to do whatever it takes to restore you and bring you back to Him. Number three, what did this father do? He threw his arms around him and kissed him. As a boy, you get to that point eventually, right, man, where it's not cool anymore for your dad to kiss you, right? Mom is one thing, right? But dad, kissing your father, that's just, that's different. What's dad doing here? What's he doing in this story? In this display, as the father hugs and kisses his son, he's welcoming him back into the family. Verse 20 says, he ran, he was filled with compassion to him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. He's restoring the relationship between him and his son. Remember, when, he, when this boy goes off and sets off to take everything his dad owes him, he's basically saying, this effectively ends our relationship. In fact, had everything gone well for the boy in the far country, he may have never seen his father again. It's only the circumstances of his his wastefulness and and the famine in the land that brings the boy back to this realization that he's got to come home. Otherwise, he said, I'm done with you guys. I don't need to come back for the funeral. I've already got what's owed me. We've already settled our accounts. This is the last you'll be seeing of me. And yet, when he comes to his senses and returns to his father, his father throws his arms around him and embraces him and kisses his Son, you think you kiss a hired servant? No. No, this is family. This is family. And when you come back to the Heavenly Father, He doesn't require that you pay penance and and you, you work for a time as a hired servant. He accepts you back as a son, as a daughter of His. He accepts you back into His family. And church... There's some here today that he longs to have back in his family. He's rendering, in this moment of the father's love and acceptance, he's rendering his son's speech worthless. That's number four. He disregarded his son's speech. Did you notice the the, the speech that this boy had prepared? He, He got it together even before 
he was anywhere close to his father. He got it in his head what he was going to say. Look at it again in verses 18 and 19. The son says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And then in verse 21, he begins as the father is hugging him after the father has ran and throws his arms around him and kisses him. The, the son kind of stands his dad back in verse 21 and says, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your servant. But the verse goes on and says, but the father said to his servants. That's when he throws the party. That's when he yells instructions for them to go and get everything to, so that they can celebrate. Basically, the father is cutting his son off from this speech that he's reciting. The father didn't even allow the son to finish his speech before he began preparing a party to celebrate his return. But here's the question. Was the son's assessment of himself correct? Had he sinned against his own father and had he sinned against heaven? Was he, in fact, unworthy to be called this man's son? The answer to all of this is yes. He had forfeited all of his rights as a son. By his own decision, he had separated himself and he had no more claim to his family or to his father. And he had done it all willingly and on purpose. So yeah, the, the son was right. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy anymore to be called your son. And yet, while those words are still coming out of this boy's mouth, his father embraces him and welcomes him home. You know what this is, church? This is grace. This is the grace of Jesus Christ. We read it a couple weeks ago when we said that Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. You read uh, a minute ago in, in communion time the passage from Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about the grace of God. Let me read verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. It's right after that same passage we read. Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, verse 9 says. Not by works so that no one can boast. You know what Paul is saying? You are saved by something that you could never have done on your own. Now, the son had to come to a place where he understood this. The son had to come to a place where he was repentant of his sins. But guess what? That didn't save him. He still, by his own admission, was still unworthy to be anything but a hired hand back home. This boy did nothing to deserve the party that was thrown for him. In fact, 
This boy did everything to ensure that his dad might not ever take him back. That is grace. That's exactly what grace is. It's the only thing we can boast in because you and I ruined things. You and I completely ruined the situation between us and the Heavenly Father with our sin. And yet, through nothing that we were ever able to do, while we were still sinners, He sent His Son to redeem us. Remember where we said that this is a clear picture of the gospel of Jesus? This is a clear picture of the grace of our Heavenly Father. Because that son did not deserve restoration. But that's exactly what the father did. What did the father do in this situation, in this story? Number five, he celebrated. Number five, he celebrated. And this is what, this is what uh, a lot of Luke chapter 15 deals with, is celebration. Luke chapter 15, look this time at verses 22 and 23 again. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This father threw a party. This father who had been disgraced by his son, who had been disrespected in front of everybody, who had divided up a third of his property to give it to this squanderous boy of his. He didn't just welcome him home. He celebrated when he came home. He celebrated just like the shepherd and the woman did early in this chapter. We said a couple of weeks ago that the shepherd and the woman in this first two parables were a little bit excessive in their celebration. That's kind of the part of the story, those first two stories, that kind of veers off from reality. Uh, this might have been a stretch that they would have reacted in such a way. Let's look at it again. Um, just like the, the shepherd, Luke 15, 5 and 6 says, and when he finds it, when he finds this sheep he's been looking for, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Anybody ever been to a sheep party before? He doesn't just bring his sheep home and say, Gosh, I'm glad I found that. He throws a party. He calls his neighbors and relatives. He doesn't just send out a group text message. He, call, he goes and tells them, come and celebrate with me. Look at what the woman does when she finds her coin. Luke 15, verse 9. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. These two go a little bit overboard it's one thing for this father to be excited about his son coming home but it 
it's another altogether to go to the lengths to which this father did to celebrate that return. He celebrated excessively. Bring him a robe. In fact, he doesn't just say bring him a robe. What does he say? Bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his finger. Give this boy some sandals. Go kill the fattest calf we got. Let's have a feast and celebrate. You see, this father, who by the way had already had uh, a third less of what he had had when this story started. Right? He's already down to two-thirds of the property and the, and the money and the wealth that he had when he began. All because this younger son blew it. And by the way, that younger son didn't come home with a penny. He didn't come home with a robe and sandals. The father had to dress his boy when he returned. And yet the father doesn't care. The father says, get all the best stuff we've got and throw it on this boy. We're going to have a party. We probably know this parable best as the, prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son. We said last week that this word prodigal means spending money or resources freely and recklessly. Wastefully extravagant. We could call this boy the reckless son. The wastefully extravagant son. I also mentioned that Timothy Keller wrote a book all about this parable in Luke chapter 15. And he called this book of his, excellent book, he called it The Prodigal God. Because Keller says that the character in this story who really spent everything he had recklessly and extravagantly was the father when he celebrated the return of his son. It wasn't just that the boy spent everything he had and squandered it all. But this father spent all that he had to celebrate his son's return. And in Luke 15, verse 32, he tells them why. This is after the, the second son. This is after he and the oldest boy are out in, outside and he's explaining to this older, rebellious, just stubborn boy why we had to celebrate. Look at what he says in Luke 15, 32. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. To the father, there's no other course of action. You and I would look and say, you just lost a third of everything you had, and now you're throwing a party that's going to cost a whole lot more than you realize. Just, just accept the boy back, but keep everything in your pockets. And the dad says, you don't understand. This boy was dead. And he's come home. 
I've only been a father for a little over a year. I'll be the first one to tell you I don't know much about what it takes to parent or raise a child. We are still figuring that out every day. But I do know this. Any parent who's lost a child will tell you this. If there was any way that they could bring that child back, any way, they would do it. Luke 15, 7 says this. I tell you in the same way that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You know what sin does to your life? Do you understand what it means when Paul says the wages of sin is death? Do you understand what it means when you deliberately and willfully turn your back on the Father? You think, oh, you know what? I've got forever to make that up. I've got forever to come back and turn back around. You have separated yourself from the only one who is life. You are in death. You are in darkness. And the Father waits for you to come home. And the Father and heaven and the angels rejoice, Jesus says, over one who would turn back and return to Him. So what does this parable mean for us today? Here's, here's where we'll close. What does this parable mean for you and me? Yes, I believe that there are sons and daughters here today who need to repent and need to turn home and come back to their father. And you need to do it today. But what does this parable mean for those of us who do not need to repent? What does this parable mean for those of us who are living as children who have already turned back to the father? Who are living and trying our best to walk in righteousness as he desires? What is our Heavenly Father who accepts back His lost children and rejoices when they return? How should that change the lives of us, His followers? We close today with the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All of this is from God, who did what? Who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Is anybody thankful to God for that? Not counting people's sins against them and he has committed to us those who have received reconciliation in Jesus Christ he has committed to us this message of reconciliation we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as if though as though God were making his appeal through us I join Paul today church when he says these words we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God 
God made him who had no sin to be righteousness for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, if you're that older brother that's been there and been home for years and years and you never went out and you never partied and you never did things that dad didn't want you to do, guess what? Christ has called you to the ministry of reconciliation. Christ has called us to the ministry of going out and bringing the lost back to him. You can't save a person. Only the grace of Jesus Christ can save a person. But you can absolutely intervene in someone's life when they need to receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's what he's called us to. I'm going to ask Corey and the band to come out as we prepare for invitation. And as we do, I want to, I want to close with a story today. I don't tell a, a whole lot of stories. And maybe you've even heard this one before, but it's too good not to close with this picture today as we finish this series. There was a little boy who was visiting his grandparents, and while he was there that weekend with his sister, they each got a gift. And the boy's gift was a brand new slingshot. So he went out into the woods, and, and Grandpa said, you know, go out into the woods, shoot at the trees, you know, just, just get to practicing on your slingshot. But everything he hit, everything he shot, he could never hit the target. So as he came back through Grandma and Grandpa's yard, he spied a pet duck. His grandma's pet duck. And on an impulse, he aimed up that slingshot and let the rock fly. And you know, he hit that duck square in the head. That duck fell to the ground dead. The boy panicked. He had no idea what he had done. He desperately, he, he ran and he hid the dead duck in the woodpile only to look up when everything was covered up and see his little sister Sally watching everything he had done. After lunch that day, Johnny hadn't said a word and Grandma said, Sally, let's go wash the dishes. But Sally said, you know what, Grandma? Johnny told me earlier that he wanted to do the dishes with you today. <laughs> Didn't you, Johnny? And she whispered to her brother, remember the duck? And so Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing. And Grandma said, I'm sorry, but I need Sally to help me make supper for us tonight. And Sally smiled and said, that's all taken care of, Grandma. Johnny told me he wants to do it. And again, she didn't say anything this time, but she said it. She looked in a way that he knew what she meant. Remember that duck? Remember what happened in the yard? After several days of doing both his chores and Sally's chores, Johnny just finally couldn't stand it. In the middle of the night, he, he broke into tears and he ran to his grandma's bed and he, he, in tears he confessed that he killed the duck. And grandma said, Johnny, I know you did. I was standing at the door, I was standing at the kitchen window the whole time and I saw the whole thing. 
And because I love you in that moment, I forgave you. But I wondered how long you would let Sally make a slave out of you. You see, you might be running from God, but God knows everywhere you've been. And God knows everything you've done. We've got to stop letting sin make slaves out of us. Today, as we have this time of invitation, Terry's going to come forward and, and we're going to have a time for anyone that needs to come back to the Father. He knows what you've done. He knows where you've been. And He waits. And He looks for you to come home. And today, church, if you're that wandering son, if you're that wandering daughter, come and join the celebration that's in store for you when you come and return to the Father. As we stand and as we sing today.